0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Haan's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehaan.com. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Isabel Wilkerson from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. In 2016, President Barack Obama awarded Isabel Wilkerson the National Humanities Medal for her first magisterial book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which chronicles one of the great untold stories of American history, the decades-long migration of black citizens who fled the South for northern and western cities in search of a better life. It went on to spend months on the New York Times bestseller list and has been hailed as a modern classic. Wilkerson began her career as a journalist and became the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize in journalism and the first African-American to win for individual reporting. Wilkerson joined us at the Portland Book Festival to talk about her book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. It is an astonishing reframing of American history and our founding myths that is vital to understanding what is happening in America today, socially and politically. Wilkerson is in conversation with writer Viet Tan Nguyen, author of numerous works of fiction and nonfiction, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning
1: novel The Sympathizer. Here's Viet Thanh Nguyen. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be back here in Portland, virtually, at any rate, and it's a tremendous pleasure to be here in conversation with Isabel Wilkerson. I've been a big fan since The Warmth of Other Suns. I'm sure you've heard that a million times before, uh, but I just want to start off by at least talking just for a second about, about that book and its relationship to cast for me, um, because as a writer, I really admired The Warmth of Other Suns, and it's it's masterful storytelling, and uh, the, the way that you have of shifting the language in order to get us to look anew at something that we think we already know. So in the warmth of other suns, it was this idea of using the concepts of migration and of refugees to understand the movements of Black people out of the South. And as a migrant and a refugee myself, I found that to be, you know, just really affecting to get me to think again about the, the the length of the journeys that black people were undertaking within the country that sometimes exceeded the, the journeys that people were, were taking from outside the country to come in. And I think in Cask you're doing something similar as well, obviously with the very title of the book, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But in reading the book, I was constantly struck by the way you would just shift the language in order to, I think, especially for Americans. Force them to think again about a history that they have oftentimes chosen to forget or neglect or try to cope with in some way. I think about your use Mm -hmm. of language such as using pogroms to describe the massacres of black people, uh, describing slavery as an economy of torture, talking about plantations as labor camps where people were forced labor, uh, bringing up histories of medical experimentation and the idea that what was being done to black people constituted war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. And I think a certain number of Americans would, would, would find these, these words and these, these ideas hard to swallow as applied to what has happened in the United States. I'm not one of those people. I think, I think that you, you have forcefully brought home some of these issues that never again should someone be able to have their wedding in a forced labor camp and think it's okay to do that. Now, the biggest shift uh, that you you ask us to undertake is this idea of thinking about inequality in our society through the idea of caste instead of something like race. So I just want to start off by asking you to to tell us why is that necessary? What what does the concept of race do differently for us than, for example, race in terms of understanding our deep inequality? Well, um, thank you for that question. And first
2: of all, I wanted to say how much I. Um, I appreciate and I'm grateful to be able to be here uh, today. I wish I could be in Portland in person. Um, And I'm just thrilled to be here in conversation with you. Uh, Such an honor. Um, When it comes to the use of the term cast, it's a word that um, I began to discover uh, in working on The Warmth of the Suns. I mean, that was a book that was about the out out-mig- migration. I would say, in fact, defection of 6 million African-Americans from the Jim Crow South uh, to the rest of the country. And um, it was not just people moving, it was really people who were seeking political asylum within the borders of their own country. And so in in doing that, it forced uh, me as the writer to an investigator, you might say, to understand what was it that they were fleeing? What would propel 6 million people to defect from that part of the country uh, for everywhere else? And it turned out that the world that they were living in um, was essentially, we, we know of it as Jim Crow, but it actually was so much more than what we usually learn. It was so much more than water fountains and restrooms uh, with you know, colored only signs. It was really a regime of repression um, in which um, everything that you could and could not do was based upon what you look like. And um, that it was a hierarchy, a rigid hierarchy um, in, in which the boundaries and the policing and enforcement of those boundaries of the protocols, laws, and ex- expectations within that within that world were more akin to a caste system. And uh, it was a world in which it was against the law to merely play checkers together in Birmingham. You could go to jail if you were caught playing checkers with a person of a different race. It was a world in which there were there was actually a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the the truth on in court. Um, That means that the very word of God was segregated uh, in the Jim Crow South. And these were just a few of the many, many examples of the repression and the control and the specificity of that control the customs and protocols that kept the groups, not just apart, but with a rigid hierarchy in which it was very clear at every moment uh, who was dominant and who was subjugated. And so uh, in, in, you know, telling that, trying to tell that story, I mean, I, I en- ended up um, interviewing over or speaking with over over 1,200 people in order to narrow it down to the three protagonists that I chose. But in the process, I was talking to people who were survivors of that regime and then hearing their experiences. And then also looking at the work of anthropologists who went into the Jim Crow South in the depth of that of that system Uh, in the 1930s and 40s and spent uh, months of doing ethnography and participant observation and field work. And they emerged from their studies, uh, their research using the word caste. Caste seemed to be the more comprehensive language to describe what was in some ways the bedrock foundational uh, uh, region, foundational uh, interconnections that, that ultimately would Um, spread to the rest of the country, if not in law, then in practice, um, in the ways that we saw redlining and restrictive covenants and hypersegregation in the places that people uh, migrated to. So this was the foundation. That foundation had, um, had its origins in the um, the founding of this country when it was a colony uh, along the Chesapeake. And it was there um, in the early 17th century that the British colonists arrived here, decimated the numbers of uh, Indigenous people, drove them from the land, and then uh, transported Africans uh, to uh, to be enslaved, uh, to build the country out of wilderness. And that set in motion a body. Bi- polar caste system uh, where the laws and customs and protocols that that ensued um, in the uh, following um, decades uh, created a world in which there was a dominant group of people who were the, the uh, British colonists and the, uh, the subjugated bottom group Uh, which were people who are African. And in this case, you're asking about the use of the term race versus caste. What it meant was that caste as an idea, as a phenomenon is thousands upon thousands of years old, predates the idea of race. And any hierarchy that's set up could choose any number of metrics in, in order to apportion, to divide and to rank people. And in this country, Um, This very, very fairly new concept known as race, which only goes back for four or 500 years, was the metric that was used in order to identify, uh, characterize, uh, um, and to apportion and to assign people to a fixed place um, in what was ultimately going to become the United States. And we live with the after effects of that um, to the current day.
1: Well, you bring up after effects, and you also used words like defection, and political asylum, uh, which again, Mm -hmm. Americans I think are not used to thinking, oh, we have to defect from the United States or we have to seek asylum within our own country. And yet that is exactly the argument you're making uh, for the experiences of people who are at the bottom of this caste system and who are subjected to all kinds of horrifying crimes uh, around labor, torture and and, and so on. Um, What it also implies though, is that we're, we have a country that's actually at least two countries a country that's experienced one way by those at the top of the caste system and, and another country that's experienced a completely different way by those at the bottom of the caste system. And that there are long term consequences uh, for this that extend into the present. And I think in the book, you make that very clear, because if I understand it right, you were finishing this book at the beginning of the uh, the pandemic. Uh, there are sections of the book that, that reference the pandemic and also the Trump administration, the political elections, the presidential elections of 2016 and, and the, uh, the, the election that was about to happen uh, in the spring. Um, so let me ask this question from your perspective. Does Does Trump and the Trump administration represent the last line of defense of a caste system that is, uh, that is built around defending white supremacy.
2: Well, um, I'm not a political scientist, and my focus is on um, the interconnectedness and essentially the power relationships that develop as a result of a hierarchy, not of the making of anyone alive today, but that we've inherited. I often describe our country as being like an old house, um, and you don't want to go into the basement when after rain, um, but you don't go into the basement at your own peril. Um, These are longstanding uh assumptions stereotypes and power relationships that that transcend any one election any one campaign any one politician this these these uh this hierarchy this caste system which i I should give a definition of it the definition uh that i came to that you know i first used this language in um in the warmth of the suns and when people would read it it just rolled uh, into understanding. I mean, readers just went along with the flow because the the stories and the experiences of the people um, affirmed the uh, the relevance and and accuracy of the comprehensive nature of the idea of caste. But um, I use the term caste because caste actually is um, a, a is language that that, as you mentioned before, um, in some ways allows us to see past what we think we know. It is language that we're not accustomed to seeing and clearly the language that we've been using up until now, the ways that we've been looking at ourselves up to now have not been working. I mean, we have seen in our current era, people literally being killed before our very eyes. George Floyd obviously comes to mind most particularly. And this is something that should not happen to any human being anywhere on the planet in our era. We should be more advanced than than this as a species. And yet we saw that occurring, not just somewhere in in the planet, but but on in our own country, and so the, these are the kinds of things that we are seeing as manifestations of the sort of the afterlife of these originating of this originating hierarchy. But caste uh, as an idea um, means actually caste is an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society, and it determines one's standing, uh, respect, benefit of the doubt. Um, assumptions of, of competence and, and intelligence and, and beauty even um, it, it uh, determines access to resources or the or the deprivation of access to resources. So when I describe all this I'm just saying that this is part of the foundation of what we have inherited as Americans. This is not something that any one campaign or any one administration or any one politician um, you know uh, can can in it, in itself, Uh, It's not about that, it's about the enduring legacy that we've inherited and and the ways that it manifests itself. And when you think about that old house, you you don't want to go into the basement after rain, but you don't go in the basement um, at your own peril because Whatever is they, happening in the basement, we have to address that, whether we wish to or not. It will bubble forth, and it will affect us, whether we wish to or not. You um, know, uh, ignorance is no protection against the uh, the against one's inaction, the consequences of the of that inaction. And so, what this is asking of us is to uh, is to learn the history of our country so that we can understand this old house that we've inherited. We did not build these une- uneven pillars and joists, but we are the inheritors of it now and it's up to us and it's on, our, it's on us to be able to deal with this. Many of the things that we might be seeing are, are merely manifestations of the inheritance that has not been dealt with up until now. The language that I'm suggesting here allows us to see things without sometimes the freighted emotions that can be evoked with, Um, the language that we we almost can't even hear anymore because we've heard it for so long. You know, it it allows us to, it in, in some ways has the potential to liberate us from the unhelpful emotions of guilt and blame and shame and allows us to see the infrastructure cast is not about feelings it's about this infrastructure the architecture of our divisions the history and the origins of how we got to where we are and the language that we've been using up until now the ways that we've been looking at this up until now have not been working as they could we even had you know a civil rights movement that made great strides in our country um, we had you know the civil rights legislation in 1964 65 and 68 we had changes in the immigration laws we have over- Opened up uh, for women of all races and all backgrounds, and for so many people. But we are seeing that we have uh, we have not addressed all of these issues. We have seen before our very eyes the ways that this inheritance of division has remained with us. I mean, this you know to, you, I don't speak about uh, elections so much, but we have seen the great chasm in our in our society you know, just in in recent weeks, we have seen it. It's still playing out before our eyes in the news. And so um, this is an effort to try to get us to be able to see beyond what we thought we knew, to look at the infrastructure of our division so that we can begin to heal from them.
1: You started off the answer, I think, by, by talking about the foundation of the country, not just in a metaphorical sense with the House, but the very foundation of the country, starting from colonization, you know, the arrival of settlers from 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 Europe, uh, the the genocide of natives, the importation yeah. of uh, uh, African labor, turning them into to slaves. Uh, these are facts, as far as I'm concerned, in American history. Although there are some people who would choose to deny these facts, but they're also facts that are subject to deep conflicts of of interpretation. But If we start with that premise that the country is founded on colonization and and on genocide and on on expropriation of lands and so on, it gets us to this present day reality that you're discussing so forcefully that our, our inequalities are deeply rooted or deeply built into the country and that it's going to take enormous effort to transform them. Even things like the civil rights movement, black power movement have not been obviously successful at dislodging so many of the prejudices and assumptions and and uh, practices of, of racism and inequality and the, and the caste structure. And I know that in the book, you refrain from trying to give us prescriptions or predictions and so on about how to deal with this. But inevitably, you must be asked, if the foundations of this house are so deeply flawed from the very beginning, can we actually repair the house? Uh, or, or do we actually need to do something much, much more radically different?
2: Well, you know, I present myself as the building inspector of this old house. I present myself as holding an x-ray of our country so that we can see, um, you know, beneath what we thought we knew. Um, and so if you take that, um, you know, analogy to its next conclusion, you realize that the radiologist presents it and you know, gives you the diagnosis and it's the surgeon that does the operation. So I actually, I also believe that um, people who um, are from the historically subjugated group um, in this country are who have to bear the brunt of this caste system on a daily basis um, are, are not the group that, um, that the country should be leaning on. Um, the people who are born to the subjugated group already bear the brunt bear the burden and have bear, borne the burden for far too long and it is up for up to others in in this country to do the work uh, to, do, to examine and go into the um, the unseen corners of our country um, people who have not had to bear the burden have a, a, an even higher uh, responsibility to do the work of understanding how we got to where we are. And I would say, I just wanna say a couple of things about how uh, about the history of this as to why it's so relevant and, and in some ways why so much um, discussion about a caste system in general, whether we're, whichever one you're speaking about, we often end up spending a lot of time talking about um, the circumstances of the people uh, who are at the bottom and i have I feel torn about this because on the one hand, um you know we spend so much time talking about what's happening with people in the bottom that we're not training enough of a spotlight on the responsibilities and the and and the things that people who are situated elsewhere can do uh to help overcome these you know these man made um you know Constructed divisions that we live with, but I want to say a little bit about one of the reasons why we, you know, whether you look at the Indian caste system, where there's so much attention put on on the Dalit people, formerly known as Untouchables, um, in the United States, so much attention put on, of course, Indigenous people who've been essentially exiled from from um, from much of the mainstream, but then also on those who have been um, enslaved. You know, so much attention talk uh, about the people who've been enslaved. And so we often think of that as ancient history that has nothing to do with us today. But I wanted to put in perspective, you know, to, um, I think part of the challenge in answering your original question is we can't fix what we don't know. You know, we can't fix what we cannot name. We cannot repair what we have not yet um, even fully understood. And you can't repair or fix or heal what you haven't diagnosed. And so that's why I spent so much time on the diagnosis and trying define and describe what it is but I wanted to say a couple of things that are in the book that set in uh that help to set the scene for and help to put in context um, the magnitude of this history and how recent the history actually is you know um, because we're a young country and we often don't think in these terms The idea of slavery or enslavement, which is the foundation of of the hierarchy that I'm talking about here, slavery lasted for so long. It lasted for 12 generations. How many greats do you have to add to the word grandparent to begin to imagine how long slavery lasted in this country? Twelve generations. Of course, this was followed by another nearly 100 years of a formal legal Jim Crow caste system in the South which was where most African-Americans were living and then spread um, in other ways once African-Americans spread out and then were uh, were met with tremendous resistance, hypersegregation and other other ways of limiting people. And so enslavement went on for so long that it will not be until the year 2022 that the United States will have been a free and independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on this soil. Again, it will not be until the year 2022 that the United States will have been a free and independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on this soil. The foundational, fundamental um, uh, hierarchy that set in motion uh, the power uh, power divisions and, and the power structure that we live with to this day, and the in- inequities uh, that we live with to this day. Another way of looking at it is that is that. Um, Uh, enslavement went on for so long that um, no adult alive today will be alive at the point at which African Americans will have been free. The subjugated group, historically subjugated group in this country will not have been free. No adult will be alive at the point at which they will have been free for as long as they were enslaved that time will not come until the year 2111. It will not be until 2111 that African-Americans will have been free for as long as they were enslaved. And so these are ways to begin to put in context um, the the nature and extent and the, the fundamental facts of, of how we became as divided as we are. And also a reminder of how very new this uh, this idea of freedom is. In other words, um, it, it wasn't until the 1960s that African-Americans were uh, actually permitted into the mainstream of American life. So this idea of, of being able to move into the mainstream is a very, very new process. Position um, When we think about women being able to move into the general mainstream in terms of being protected from job discrimination, that also was folded in. A lot of people don't realize that that was folded in to the civil rights legislation um, to, to allow uh, and to bring women uh, into uh, great to the potential for parity. And of course, the Immigration uh, Act of, of 1965 that also opened the way for people who were beyond Europe to be able to come in, into this country in large numbers. So this is all relatively new, this idea of opening up the country um, to people who are beyond what had been the traditional dominant group in this in, in society. So this is still a continuation of the American project.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if pessimism or optimism are reductive ways of talking about uh, what you're describing, because on the one hand, we can be very pessimistic that that change has been so slow, in this country on the other hand uh as you as you described it you know we're trying to undo centuries of baked in uh, oppression and inequality and so on and, and uh short of a violent revolution we're looking at centuries more work that needs to be done in order to unravel or to rebuild or to renovate whatever metaphor you want to use this this uh, yeah. uh damaged house that we're that we're living in um but you know you, you drive your point home very thoroughly by by working through various kinds of uh, examples and comparisons, uh, and one of the comparisons that you that you bring up is the uh, the Nazi Germany model. Um, and again, Americans, a lot of Americans do not want to see themselves compared to Nazi Germany, but you you present this this historical case for how um, Nazi intellectuals, uh, if that's what you want to call them, looked to the United States in the 1930s uh, for models of how to deal with um, uh, racial segregation, racial hierarchies and so on. And you argue that uh, you know, the, 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 the Nazi plan for, for targeting Jews, for, uh, for identifying them as a racial population and so on, drew great inspiration from the American model. But the Nazis, some of the Nazis themselves were shocked at the, at the degree of excess in the American model. So can you tell us more about that? Well, um, I
2: uh, have to preface it by saying that uh, one of the um, reasons that I began looking into Germany at all was because of Charlottesville. You know, in Charlottesville, you know, there we saw before our very eyes the merging of these two symbols, the symbols of uh, the Confederacy and the symbols of Nazi Germany, the, uh, the uh, protesters themselves. Made that connection. They are the ones that made the connection. They saw across time and across ocean um, a connection, uh, a, a shared perspective, uh, of values. Uh, They're the ones that pull those things together. And and um, you know the what happened in Charlottesville, um, you know, made me uh, think about sparked uh, this interest uh, in uh, in me to better understand. Um, what is it that that Germany had done in the um, decades after the war uh, to uh, reconcile with, to uh, somehow atone for what had happened uh, in in, uh, in the intervening uh, uh, decades what what had happened in the war and so that's what set me on the journey for of even looking at Germany to begin with I, I might not have had there not been Charlottesville and so as I started to look to see how they had Um, manage their memory of of the war. Um, I, I, you know, came to discover things or become aware of things that I never ever would have would have known. I mean, one of them is that it turned out that German eugenicists uh, actually were in dialogue with and uh, were uh, consulting with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the Third Reich. I had no idea that they had uh, done that there had been that um, connection between the two. It turned out that American eugenicists had uh, written uh, books that were huge bestsellers in Germany uh, in the years leading up to the war. And uh, that in fact, those books written by American eugenicists were used by the Nazis in their school curriculum. I had no idea, would never have imagined such a connection. Now, the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. Uh, obviously, they did not need anyone uh, to teach them how to hate. Um, but it turned out, as you mentioned, that the Nazis had actually sent researchers to the United States to study uh, the the Jim Crow laws, to study the anti-miscegenation laws in particular, the laws that uh, forbade marriage across uh, racial lines. They also were uh, studying and and very interested in how the United States um, defined, had found ways to define who could be assigned to which race. And of course, each state had different uh, definitions for who could be considered um, Black, who could be considered Chinese, who could be considered um, a native, who could be considered, considered white. I mean, all of them had different um, different ways of doing it. And the most extreme cases, of course, um, uh, had what's called the one drop rule, which meant that if, if a person had one drop of African blood, any hint of African ancestry, they would be considered Black. And these were the range of things that they were looking at as they were attempting uh, to and ultimately uh, came to uh, develop what would become the Nuremberg Laws. These were just shocking things to to discover in the process of working on this, uh, working on something in which I was trying to get to uh, what is really critical in understanding this book, which is societies are in any way equal. They're not They are. This is not to say that they are the same in any way. There are many, 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 many differences between the societies that I'm looking at in this book, But, but there are significant points of intersection. And the goal of all of this is to remember that this book was written by an American for an American audience about America at a point of existential crisis in our country. And so in doing that, Um, the era that we're in calls upon all of us, calls upon us to look for um, ways that we can better understand ourselves, better understand our country, and look to see the ways that we might learn from what has happened in in other societies where there are these points of intersection.
1: Right. And, you know, in your well, first of all, I want to say when you brought up the issue of American eugenicists, I teach at the University of Southern California. One of our earliest century presidents was a eugenicist. We have a building named after him, but I don't think my <laughs> university is unique in that regard. <laughs> you know that that uh, eugenics is uh, uh, from our perspective in in the early 21st century, uh, eugenics might be a very neutral sounding term. But as you said, there, there's a a horrifying connection there between the you know this this kind of a study and its and its application in, in the way that populations were actually were actually treated and, and targeted. And yet the, the enshrinement of eugenics is embedded in things like the names of university buildings and all of that, which means that there's there isn't actually an urgent case for thinking about memorialization and the names of buildings and statues and all of that kind of thing. And as you point out in your book, contemporary Germany has done a, a fairly good job in terms of confronting its past, in terms of uh, refusing to memorialize or to um, uh, create monuments for for Nazis, and in terms of trying to confront what Germ- Germany actually did to Jewish people and, and so on. And in comparison to that, the United States seems woefully behind in terms of confronting his past even even the the battles that we're having over whether we whether or not we should have confederate statues in public places seems so retrograde to so many of us we shouldn't be having these kinds of battles and yet as you illustrate in the book these battles can come are, are actually very really deeply entrenched and in, in one part part of the book you you do talk about the the take down of a confederate monument and the the di- how much difficulty was involved in that so perhaps you can talk about that That's such a good
2: point that you make, um, that that was in the city of New Orleans where the mayor, Mitch Landrieu, um, after the the, uh, Charleston massacre, um, he was um, distraught by the idea that the uh, uh, shooter in the Charleston massacre had been inspired by the Confederacy. And he thought, why do we have these monuments in our city? Um, to uh, um, the Confederacy, which was, uh, and he as having been traitors to the country, they were on the wrong side of history. And he, he, he felt that they should not be um, this. He was the mayor and he said, if we don't want them here, we shouldn't have to have them here. So they made plans in order to remove them. And it turned out that um, it had to be done um, in the greatest of secrecy. It turned out that there was such resistance to it uh, the, the contracting company had to make sure that they were um, in disguise that their their faces were not visible that that no one could see even they had to cover their entire body so that their own their race would not be visible they had um, coverings on all of the sides of a truck so that no one could see the name of the company uh, they had the license plates covered and they did it in the middle of the night with police protection all of this was required to merely remove one of the statues um, in that city and there was such a a tremendous pushback uh, leading up to it you know that that they are still you know still recovering from from that and yet when you look in berlin uh, where i spent quite a bit of time working on this book there's a lot of travel involved in this book Uh, when you go to berlin it's a major world city and there in the middle of a major world city a massive installation. It's several football fields wide. And that installation is the monument, the memorial to those who perished in the Holocaust. And it is, you know, it's a series of concrete, um, rectangles that you can walk among them. But what's really distinctive about it is that there's no signage. There are no um, exhibition walls that describe what it is or what it's there for. There's no signage necessary. People know the history. Young people, children learn it from as young as they're, as, as soon as they're able to begin to comprehend uh, what happened in the war. And they, it continues on through their um, their, their school years. The, um, the places that had that are connected to the Nazis have been converted into museums, places of learning, places where people from all over the world can come and learn about what happened there uh, so that it can never, ever happen again. They are all on the same page about their history. Now, that does not mean that they all, uh, you know, agree on the politics. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, that things are perfect. But it means that they have a basic understanding, and they are on a, the same page about what happened in the country. We, however, are not on the same page about our country's history. We're not even on the same page about what we're not on the same page for. We have such a long way to go to be able to try to understand what's happening in our country. And I can say, you know, when the warmth of the suns first came out, I was, you know, reminded of how, how um, much we really don't learn about our country's history. Because when I would go out and talk about that book, and people would say to me when they after they read it, they'd say, um, over and over again, they would say, I had no idea that this happened in our country. I had no idea, especially for the people who were the older people i would run into, they'd say, I had no idea that this happened in my lifetime. I heard that over and over and over again, I had no idea. Having an idea has consequences, it has consequences, and it has consequences as to what policies we support, where we choose to live, where we send our children to school, those people who, um, who are employers, who you will employ, who you will assign to whatever positions you do. I mean, it has consequences throughout our society, and so it's time that we, we get an idea. It really truly is time that we get an idea.
1: As, at one point in the book, you, you raised the, the idea that what we need is a truth and reconciliation commission in the United States, um, which I fully endorse. But given the the divisions that you've already described, I'm, I'm actually fairly pessimistic that we could actually achieve a truth and reconciliation commission. I mean, to have a truth and reconciliation commission, you either need to have all parties sort of agree to do it, or you need to have that imposed by sort of an external force, but it does speak to the point that you raised earlier, that it's not up to the people at the bottom of the, of the caste system to try to do certain things to change it, but that people with greater uh, power or, or, or greater access to these means need to take action themselves. And Landry is one example of a person who did that. You also mentioned yeah. that you did a lot of travel for the for this book, and I do want to talk about the making of this book. As someone who, ha- who has spent 17 and 20 years working on mm-hmm. books, I greatly respect any writer, as you, like yourself, who has also spent ten and fifteen years working on her, her epic tomes as well, and of course, in the history of Black intellectuals and Black activists, the the necessity of travel has always been there, where Black people have had to leave this country to go to Africa or to go to Europe to to make connections to. To, to learn about comparative systems and, and alternative possibilities. And you did this as well, traveling to, to Berlin, but also to India to construct this book where you're looking at analogous things that were happening in Nazi Germany, but also uh, with Dalits in India. Maybe you could talk more about what the experience of travel did for you as a writer and as a thinker uh, in, in this book.
2: If that book were a human being, it would be in high school and dating. That's how long I worked on that book. So, so yes, I end up spending a lot of time on the books because it is completely, totally research-based. It's based on ethnography. It's based on interactions with people. It's based on, of course, the research uh, of those that have gone before us. So, yes, I ended up doing a. Tremendous amount of of traveling back and forth, and I found that my interactions with uh, with Dalits were particularly enlightening because I I, I didn't know what how I would be received, and it turned out that they um, often know so much more about the experiences of people in the United States than than we know about the of those who were at the bottom of the caste system in, in India. And they gravitate toward uh, African-Americans, they gravitated toward toward me um, because they they recognized um, the parallel placement. Of course, the societies are very, very different in so many ways, but they, they recognized the positioning um, and, and they recognized... Perhaps even more than than I would initially, um, how much we actually have in common. Many of the uh, phenomenon and, uh, translate almost directly in the experiences, so that you end up. And from my, my experience, was almost one of being able to finish each other's sentences. When it comes to how people respond based on their positioning in the caste system, and so I, I found that to be just um, in, in incredibly enlightening and and you know, oddly comforting, um, sad though, because it's sad that anyone has to experience any of these things at all. Um, I would also say that the experiences of, um, of you know, we were talking about um, Nazi Germany, but I hadn't had a chance to say a little bit more about how all three of them actually had so many points of intersection. And one of them has to do with purity versus pollution as a primary hallmark of, of uh, I, I actually, in the book, I describe eight, pillars of caste that I identified. And so one of the the things that all three of them had in common, well, actually all, all three of them have all of them in common, but one of them that is a hallmark is purity and pollution. And in that case, that's the idea that the dominant group To great lengths to maintain what it perceives to be its purity and to protect itself from the perceived fear of pollution from those deemed subjugated or beneath them. So, in, you know, I had a chance to hear more about and learn more about how that played out in India, both historically and even manifestations now. One of the, the examples of that is the idea of water. Um, this critical element of life itself on this planet was carefully guarded and protected by the dominant caste in each of these societies across time, across space, across oceans. That was one of the points of intersection so that um, in India, um, Dalit people could not drink from the same um, you know, cup or chalice, of course. In Nazi Germany, the uh, Nazis, the, the Aryans were would be separate from uh, Jewish people in the waters. Jewish people were not permitted to, to uh, wade in the pools uh, along with, uh, with Aryans. And in our country, um, African Americans were uh, prohibited from waters that were reserved for the dominant caste for white people. Um, this, would, this applied to pools into the 1960s. There are cases where um, after the civil rights uh, legislation uh, in many towns, um, they would concrete over the, the pool that had been for white people, when they were ordered to allow black people into those pools, they would rather close the entire pool down rather than to um, allow uh, blacks and whites or to to swim in the same waters. Uh, Rules had um, life and death consequences. Um, In in Chicago, for example, uh, there was a case of a young man, a young teenager who swimming in Lake Michigan, which was segregated. The very waters of Lake Michigan were segregated. And he happened to be uh, swimming on a beach that was the the black side of that invisible line. And he happened to have waded into what was viewed as the white water. And he was stoned to death for having done so. And this set off one of the um, the worst race uh, riots. massacres um, in, in our country's history, part of the red summer of 1919. But these are examples of how this was a matter of life and death, this policing of boundaries. Um, and this is something that was consistent across these three societies that I looked at.
1: Well, you bring up policing boundaries and that, that language, of course, means that we can recognize how the problem of purity and pollution has not gone away. I mean, we're still at a time period when uh, black people in certain places will have the police called on them because somebody thinks they don't belong in that place, whether it's, you know, a Yale dormitory or whether it's Central Park <laughs> or the obsession that some people have in this country with building walls along our borders is an attempt to keep the entire country pure from certain kinds of contamination in, in the eyes of the people who think we need these kinds of uh walls and borders. But I want to end our, our portion of the conversation by, go, by touching on one other aspect of your book. And I'm, I'm sorry that we have not been able to touch on 90% of what your book is doing. But maybe one last thing is the, um, the flexibility uh, of, of the caste system in certain ways and, and the degree to which um, you know, people can be complicit in the caste system, possibly against the interests of their own caste. And so you bring up some examples of this. Uh, you talk about how uh, even though there's this polarization and there's a, a racial hierarchy with uh, white people at the top of the caste system, whiteness itself is, is flexible to a certain degree. So people who were not considered white a century ago have now become white. speaking about cer- certain European ethnicities and mm-hmm. there's a possibility that populations like high, highly diverse populations like Asian Americans and Latinos have held be, have have before them this lure that that they somehow could become aligned with whiteness, which might account for some of the gravitation of these populations towards uh, a Trump presidency. And you also talk about things like how even if you belong to to a caste, let's say you're a black police officer, it doesn't mean you're immune from the the need to reinforce these caste divisions. You bring up the example of Freddie Gray. And his death in Baltimore in the back of a police van, being driven by black police officers. So I just wanted to end with that, and 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 let you have the final word in in these last few minutes, if you can elaborate upon this endurance and 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 flexibility in the caste system, in which many people are are tempted to participate against their own interests.
2: That is, I think, one of the probably the, the singular most. Um, illuminating aspects of caste that very few other ideas capture. And that is, this is not about, first of all, the the racism of our forefathers' era. Um, This is not about uh, white people not liking or hating other people. Um, This is about a system in which everyone is in some ways enlisted, whether we wish to or not, because this is the prevailing hierarchy, and in order to survive and flourish in a hierarchy that, that has, you know, re- roots as lo- as deep as ours is, is that everyone learns the protocols, everyone learns the cues, everyone learns uh, the assumptions, and and and. The order of value of human beings in the society. And people, you know, it's a bipolar caste structure to begin with, but then anyone entering this this bipolar system then has to navigate and figure out how to manage, how will they flourish, how do they survive in this caste system that predated their arrival. And one of the things, you know, being human beings who, who, who have arrived here and want to succeed. People enter into a pre existing hierarchy, and do that, you must recognize, learn, um, and acclimate to the expectations of those who are dominant. You know, throughout our country's history, there have been. Uh, adjustments made, mutations, um, expansion, uh, and retraction of who can be in the dominant caste legally um, at the turn of the 20th century, um, a very fraught time. There, were, there was a time where people who are now recognized as, you know, without question, you know, we now recognize them as white, which again, this is all social construction. And this is a reminder of what a social construction it is that there are many people who, you know, from Eastern and Southern Europe who were not uh, allowed in or seen as part of the, the white race, um, this is, again, because it's social construction. Shockingly, um, this is something that has changed over time to fit the needs of the dominant caste as it has seen fit. Um, and, and so you know, there's an interesting case of, uh, of a Japanese immigrant at the first of the uh, early part of the 20th century who made the case, went all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing that his skin was actually whiter than those of people who were identified as white. And he went to the Supreme Court saying, why can I not be considered as this in order to be a citizen? Because that was what was not required. In order to be a citizen, you had to be white. And so he was advocating uh, and, and petitioning for citizenship. And that was the route he was taking. Uh, they had to come up with this convoluted reason why skin color was actually not the prime determinant. For for admission to the white race, and again, even the term Caucasian is a as co- a construction out of the imagination of as of an 18th century German physician who collected skulls, and he collected all these skulls, and he his favorite skull, the one that he deemed the most beautiful, was one from the Caucasus, and he then um, this was a time where. Europeans and were looking for ways to explain the natural, so-called natural world and use scientific, pseudoscientific ways of, of describing it. So the term Caucasian began to be applied based upon his delineation of humanity, based on these skulls. And he assigned himself to the superior group, even though, of course, he was from Germany and not the Caucasus. So this is a reminder of the kind of arbitrary nature of these divisions that have then been the cause of, you know, enslavement and, you know, decimation of native people and heartbreak of immigrants, you know, walls that are being built. This is a reminder that this is all an artificial um, construction. And if this can be constructed, then it means that it can also be dismantled to the degree that people recognize how much we all have in common and how dependent we are uh, on one another. And this isn't this, you know, I want to say that I, I actually in this book, I'm, I'm not, this is not an argument. Um, I'm just I'm a narrative writer. I'm not I'm not arguing. This book is a prayer for our country and it's a prayer for our country and for uh, the planet, really, because our times call for looking past these artificial constructions and to seeing we can find a way to transcend them.
0: That was a conversation between Isabel Wilkerson and Viet Thanh Nguyen from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. The 2021 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place from November 8th to the 13th, online, on the radio, and in person. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project, It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehawn.com. Our show is produced by Krista Ligori for radio and podcast, with production support from Serena Fong. Production oversight by Amanda Bullock, with support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.